Hello, and welcome to Season 2, Episode 10 of Dr. Music. I'm Matthew Murillo. Thank you so much for joining me. Today we're going to do something a little different, and I say a little different because in all of my prior episodes, I talked about composers as early as the Baroque period, but I never went into the Renaissance. And there's a wealth of music in the Renaissance. As a matter of fact, I could devote an entire season just to the Renaissance if I wanted to. Now, there are a lot of famous Renaissance composers, but one of the most famous is Josquin Dupre, and he's so famous that musicologists usually refer to him by his first name, Josquin. We don't know a whole lot about him. We know he was born around 1450 and died in 1521. We're not even sure exactly where he was born. It might have been in present-day Belgium, or it might have been present-day France. We're not 100% sure. And as to the details of his personal life, again, we don't know a whole lot. But we do have a lot of his music. And he is definitely one of the most famous composers of the entire Renaissance period. And whenever you take a course in music history, they are definitely going to talk about Josquin, especially if the course is a survey of the Middle Ages and the Renaissance. Now, I'm not sure if any of you out there have listened to Renaissance music, but it's quite different from tonal music. Now, remember, when I say tonal music, I'm talking about music of the common practice period. And the music of the common practice period begins around the Baroque period. Music, for instance, by Johann Sebastian Bach, where the tonal system was really formulated and set into place. So when I talk about tonal music, I'm talking primarily about the major and the minor modes. But if you've listened to any of my prior episodes, you know that there are modes of music that are a lot older than the major and the minor modes. For instance, we've spoken about what's called the church modes. Those modes go way back into the Middle Ages. And the names of these modes are derived from ancient Greek peoples and usually refer also to specific geographical locations. Like, for instance, the Dorian mode, the Lydian mode, the Aeolian mode, the Ionian mode... And some of these modes eventually developed into what we know today as the major and the minor modes, giving us the music from Bach to Billy Joel. So when you listen to a piece from the Renaissance period, you're not necessarily listening to something in the major and the minor mode, although a lot of the harmonic progressions will certainly remind you of tonal music as we know it today. But the rules are a lot different. I remember when I attended the Eastman School of Music, I took a course on Renaissance counterpoint. Now, just to remind you, counterpoint is the study of two or more rhythmically independent melodies and their interaction. And the rules of writing counterpoint differ depending on what style you're writing in. So if you're writing Renaissance counterpoint or counterpoint of the Middle Ages, the rules are going to be different. And certainly 20th century counterpoint is a world away from the Renaissance counterpoint. But anyway, I took this course at the Eastman School of Music and the guy who was teaching the course actually wrote the textbook, which is kind of an intimidating experience because you know that he knows the material backwards and forwards because he wrote the textbook, and boy, did he know it. But that inspired me to do as well as I could, and uh, it, it was not easy because I was writing in a style that I was not familiar with. Writing Renaissance counterpoint is a lot different than writing counterpoint in the Baroque style, so I really had to dig my heels in and really learn all those rules, and there's quite a lot of rules. And sometimes it was frustrating because I had to write counterpoint in the Renaissance style, and it wasn't a particularly long assignment. I had to write maybe eight measures or ten measures, but 
because I was not familiar with the rules, it was not easy. Uh, it, it took me sometimes three to four hours to do a homework that I was really satisfied with. And I'm kind of a perfectionist when it comes to music, so I, I just couldn't give up. I had to keep at it until I got it right. And uh, at one point, the professor gave me a compliment. He said, you know, you're a, you're a composition major, right? And I said, yeah, at the time, I was majoring not in music theory, but in composition at the Eastman School of Music. And he said, for a composition major, you really know how to write that counterpoint. And his point was that usually it's the theory majors that do well in a course like that, not the composition majors. Composition majors are more concerned with writing more modern music. But I guess he didn't know that I was just as much interested in music theory as I was in composition, even though I wasn't technically a music theory major. So it's always nice to get a compliment by the professor who actually wrote the textbook. That was pretty special. Now, there's one thing that I'd like you to keep in mind while we're listening to this music. I said before that Josh Scan was not writing in the tonal system as it was formulated later on in history. To be exact, a French composer named Rameau in the early 18th century wrote a treatise on harmony. And it's from that treatise that we get all the rules and all the conventions that are followed by composers of tonal music, like, for instance, Johann Sebastian Bach and Mozart and Beethoven. But that doesn't mean the seeds were not well in place when Josquin was composing. When you listen to Renaissance music, you're going to hear a lot of tonal progressions, even though the major mode and the minor mode as we know them today were not, quote-unquote, invented. And when I say invented, I simply mean that the formal terminology and the conventions were not written down and, and put into place. By the time that Johann Sebastian Bach was composing, those conventions were firmly in place so that everybody knew what a tonal progression was. But when Josquin was composing, when you listen to the music, you can hear tonal-like progressions. There are progressions that remind us 100% of Bach's music, but then there are some progressions that don't, so it's kind of a mix. For example, I've spoken many times uh, about the chord that is built on the fifth scale degree. That's called the dominant, and I said that it tends towards the chord built on the first scale degree, which is called the tonic, so that a very, very common chord progression, indeed, the progression that old tonal music is based on, is 5-1, in other words, dominant to tonic. Now, even though that kind of terminology was not in use during the Renaissance, there's plenty of cases where you can hear a dominant going to a tonic, even though they weren't called dominant to tonic. So the composer heard the relationship, had a sense of the relationship between those two chords. And yet, all of the conventions of tonal music were not firmly set in place during the Renaissance. So, for example... There's a chord called the dominant seventh, and usually what happens with the seventh is it resolves down by step, and in some of this music, there is what we would call a seventh not resolving down by step, and that's an example of it not following the formulations of traditional tonal music. So what I'm saying is that all the procedures and conventions of what we call tonal music were in the process of evolving during the Renaissance period. It's a very fluid process. It's not like you woke up one morning and, oh, here's tonal music. It evolved gradually. And like I said, it was Rameau's treatise on harmony that really, for the first time, put these conventions and rules of music theory on paper. Now, one thing I'd also like you to pay attention to when you listen to this music is how Josquin sets the text. Josquin 
is one composer who is very, very concerned about the text being understood, even though there's a lot of counterpoint going on. There's multiple melodies going on at the same time in many parts of the piece, and yet he takes great pains to make sure that the listener understands all the text. That's not necessarily true with every Renaissance composer or in the music of the Middle Ages. So he's famous for really delineating the text that he's setting. Another important characteristic of Joscan's music is his contrast in texture. So sometimes he loves using counterpoint, and especially imitative counterpoint. Imitative counterpoint is when the various melodic lines are imitating each other, kind of like an echo effect. But other times, it's a homophonic texture. In other words, it's chord, 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 note against note. So it's not like you're hearing two rhythmically independent melodies at the same time. The parts are singing the same rhythms. And it's this contrast in texture that really makes his music very interesting and also helps to delineate the text because there are some parts of the text that Joscan wants everybody to be singing at the same time for certain reasons. And Joscan is also known for beauty of melodic line. Put simply, his melodies are very beautiful and very graceful and very memorable. And this is something that we would expect out of a famous composer, beauty of melodic line. Now the piece that I'm going to be playing for you is a motet, and the motet has a very long history. Suffice it is to say that a motet is usually based on a sacred text, but then of course later on there are secular motets, but for the most part it's based on a sacred text. And the early motets had incorporated in the music a pre-existing melody. Sometimes it was a plain chant, a chant that was composed during the Middle Ages. Uh, sometimes that chant was in the lowest voice, called the tenor, that was called a cantus firmus. And that basically means uh, singing firm. In other words, the part can't change because it's based on a pre-existing melody. But then by Joscan's time, you didn't necessarily have to have a pre-existing melody in the piece it was based on a sacred text, and all the parts can be newly composed, as in this motet that we're going to look at, Ave Maria. And regardless of your religious background, I'm sure you're familiar with the text. It starts, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee, serene virgin. Hail thou whose conception, full of great jubilation, heaven and earth is meet with new gladness replete. And then the text goes on after that. I should note here that when a teacher like me discusses a piece of music with a religious text, it's not the aim of the teacher to instill the religion on his or her students. I'm simply telling you about a piece of music written by Joscan. It could have been any religion. I'm just really worshiping the music itself. And of course, people sing religious songs to support or amplify their religious convictions. In other words, singing a religious text can be a way of expressing your spirituality and your religious beliefs, but that's not the intention of a music teacher. Music teachers are really just concerned with the music, so just thought I'd throw that by you. Okay, let's listen to how Joscan sets the first few lines. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord be with you.
Okay, now, first of all, I'm sure you heard how the voices were imitating each other, and it's seamless. It just keeps going and going, although there are articulations of what could be the ending of a phrase, in other words, uh, a cadence. The motion of the voices keeps it going, and what happens is that a new phrase starts before the last one ends. That's called an elision. An elision is when a new phrase begins, but the first phrase hasn't come to an ending yet. Now, Joskans sets the very first couple of words, Ave Maria, Hail Mary, like this. Full of grace is set like this. The Lord be with you is set a little bit differently with all four voices, but when you first hear it, it goes like this. Now, here's the thing. Before all four voices are done singing, the Lord be with you, what sounds like a cadence in, quote-unquote, the key of G, and I say that because during the Renaissance, the key of G did not exist. There were no tonal keys. But what the tenor voice is implying is going to the key of G. And just when you think it's going to be the key of G, Joskan changes the harmony back to the original key, and again, key in quotes, of C. And as this is happening, the alto comes in with the next phrase. And it's, it's hard to hear, but she's singing Serene Virgin. So she already began the next phrase even before the previous phrase was done. So what I'm going to do now is play the end of the first excerpt that I played for you, and then it's going to continue going into the next phrase, which is the text Serene Virgin. Now, right at the end there, there was uh, definitely some kind of an articulation, like a pause, a cadence. But did you hear a harmony that kind of surprised you? If it did surprise you, that's because in traditional tonal music, that's called a deceptive cadence. A deceptive cadence is just what it sounds like. It's an articulation, but it deceives you because it lands on a chord that you don't expect. The usual deceptive cadence is on something called the submediant. The submediant is Roman numeral six in a key. Remember the dominant is five and the tonic, your home key is one. Well, the submediant is six. Now, of course, that term submediant, all these terms did not exist during the Renaissance. But still, Joscan is doing what we would call today a deceptive cadence. But then what happens is the bass moves up right back into the home key. So it's a deceptive cadence, but then it goes right back into the key of C. Let's listen to that one more time. Now let's listen to the next section, and the text is, Hail thou whose conception full of great jubilation, heaven and earth is meet with new gladness replete.
I really wanted you to hear there is how Joscan varies the texture. At the very beginning of that excerpt, it was a homophonic texture. All the voices were singing in the same rhythm. But then halfway through, they gradually get into a more contrapuntal texture where the voices are singing different rhythms. But what really makes it interesting at that point is the tenor. What the tenor is doing is what we would call today syncopation. The tenor is accenting the weak parts of measures, and that's throwing off the sense of beat. This is a very 20th century kind of procedure because at this part of the piece, you definitely cannot tap your foot. And in general, with Joss Kahn's music, it's kind of tough to tap your foot to a beat because his rhythm is so fluid. And he's changing what's called the agogic accent. What's the agogic accent? That is the note in a particular measure that has the longest value. And when you change the agogic accent on weak parts of the measure, it throws off your sense of beat, and it also throws off your sense of a downbeat. In other words, the first part of a measure. For instance, if I do a rhythm like this, da, 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 and I keep repeating that, you know where beat one is. Beat one is the long note in the beginning. Da, 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 da. But if I start putting longer notes at different parts in the measure, and if some of the voices, remember, this is for vo four voices. If some of the voices are putting a long note in the beginning of the measure, but other voices are putting a long note in the middle of the measure, that again throws off your sense of meter. And you can't count to four, even though this piece is in duple time, in other words, two beats per measure. It doesn't really sound like that, does it? There's also a rhythmic trick right in the very beginning. Remember, it starts like this. Bum, 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 bum. Well, conventionally, if you were going to write that out, you would have the second note as beat one, and the first note would be an upbeat. So, bum, one, two. But actually, Joscan has the very first note as beat one, and that also throws off your sense of meter. What's great about this music is it's kind of a mesmerizing effect because the music keeps flowing and flowing and flowing. Even though the texture changes, you never really get a sense of a final cadence, like the piece is over, because Josquin always uses those harmonic and rhythmic tricks. We don't have time to go through the entire motet. That would take too long. But let's at least listen to the next verse, which goes, Hail thou whose nativity brought us solemnity, like a light bearer, the morning star was to true sun prevenient. At the beginning of that excerpt, you can hear how Joscan varies the texture. He starts off with pairs. So first he has soprano and alto singing, and then in answer to that, tenor and bass. And he loves using that perfect fourth. Bum, bum. This becomes a motif throughout this motet. It started with a perfect fourth. The very first thing you heard at the beginning of the piece was 
Ave, from the text Ave Maria. And then when the text starts talking about the morning star rising in the east, Jaskan begins a sequence of descending thirds. Bum, 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 bum. Every time I'm going down there, it's a third. Bum, 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 bum. And that's treated in imitation because it starts with the soprano, and then the alto imitates, and then the tenor, and then the bass. And pretty soon, it culminates in the first strong cadence because there's actually a rest after that cadence. Also, I don't know if you noticed, but the, the Latin for morning star is Lucifer. And a lot of us think of the devil as Lucifer. That was actually a later biblical notation because the morning star refers to Venus. And because of the planet Venus's erratic motion through the sky, it was interpreted as Satan's fall from grace. So that's why the morning star, Lucifer, became associated with Satan. Now later on, we have a verse that goes like this. Hail, true virginity, immaculate chastity, whose purification brought our purgation. And Jaskan sets this homophonically. In other words, the purity of Mary's immaculate chastity is evoked through these very pure, very clear chords. No counterpoint, just simple chords, but a very interesting echo effect in the tenor. And you'll hear that when I play this excerpt. Recording. It's Philippe Herveke conducting La Chapelle Royale. Now, for the very end of the piece, where the text is, O Mother of God, remember me, Amen, it's set even more homophonically, and time seems to stop. It's just purely note against note. And when they sing Amen, this is another very important point about Renaissance harmony. Many of the cadences are without the third of the chord. Now, remember, a triad. A traditional triad is root, third, fifth. But a strong cadence in the Renaissance leaves out the third. It's just the root and the fifth. Because the fifth, really called the perfect fifth, was the purest, the most perfect of all intervals. So in the Renaissance, when you wanted to do especially a final cadence, usually it was just the root and the fifth. And that comes out of practices in the Middle Ages, because in the Middle Ages, when there were only two voices, in other words, there was just two-voice counterpoint, when you wanted to articulate a cadence, it had to be either an octave, in other words, a C and another C above that, or a fifth, a C and a G above that. Those were considered the most perfect intervals. So you would never, for instance, cadence on a third, even though a third to our ears sounds just as perfect and just as natural. And if you listen to most of the cadences in this motet, most of them are either just an octave, in other words, all the voices are singing the same note, or an octave and a fifth. That's not true of all the cadences. But again, 
That's a carryover from the convention of the Middle Ages. So let's listen to the ending now. If you're not familiar with Renaissance music, I really recommend exploring it a little bit. Maybe listen to a little bit more of Josquin's music. And also, there are other composers. One big one is Palestrina. He's one of the best of the Renaissance. Palestrina actually continues Josquin's tradition, but he takes it to a whole new level. Now, before we go, I hope you'll indulge me with a little bit of self-promotion. I think I've mentioned in another episode that on the side, I'm a writer. My daughter is also a writer. She wrote a book at the tender age of seven called Sophia Noel Rose and the Crazy Days, and that's out on Amazon. My third novel is called Till Times Are Done, and I'm very excited because Kirkus Reviews came out with a podcast ad, and I'd like to play it for you, so here it is. This message is brought to you by Matthew Marullo, author of Till Times Are Done. When solitary, introspective Angus Wendell wakes up in his Merrick Long Island apartment, he doesn't expect to find a strange, beautiful young woman named Sylvia asleep on his sofa. She doesn't know where she is, how she got there, and never before in her life has she ever seen Angus. As Angus will eventually discover, Sylvia knows shocking details that connect to his past, one Angus never knew existed. When these two lives meet, ripples in time become gigantic waves that collide with anyone in their path. A unique tapestry of humor, mystery, fantasy, and compelling drama, Till Times Are Done is a heartwarming, suspenseful tale about how true friendship conquers all barriers, including time. Kirkus Reviews said, quote, Marullo masterfully presents a wildly implausible story in such a way that it seems possible a refreshingly quirky and sharply written family tale, end quote. Till Times Are Done is available on Amazon in paperback and ebook. Okay, I promoted Joscan in this podcast, and that's enough self-promotion. Until next time, because one thing about Dr. Music, it just gets better and better. <laughs>